0: I'm going to be giving two talks, this is the first talk, there's another one tonight, on kind of the two main categories, as I, or two of the main categories of machine learning applications, uh, generative models uh, today, or during lunch, and then um, tonight we'll talk about discriminative models. I'm leaving out the field of uh, uh, reinforcement learning, so robotics folks, uh, I'll let you, uh, you know, you can talk about that some other time when I'm not here. Uh, And uh, particularly we're gonna be talking about uh, for example so I just need to let you know I'm a I'm a singer-songwriter I do music that's how I got involved teaching at Belmont I can't draw but I uh, will see some examples of my artwork uh, through this so this was uh, the tweet that uh, happened last yeah we mentioned Twitter I uh, there's a lot of good things on Twitter uh, (laughs) in the middle of summer so um, this was an artist and uh, Stanford PhD student who said uh, we did it we finally killed art he had uh, pioneered a method for linking together a uh, generative model with a we'll see in a little bit a uh, image labeling code and uh, his initial code was called the big sleep you can download it if you want Um, and then this went on and uh, people started adding more models and learning more tricks and the summer, last summer was a flurry of activity which is still continuing today but in particular uh, hardcore, a lot of us, uh, some of us involved just became junkies of generating art uh, that looks really compelling and amazing just on the basis of entering a prompt and saying give me a picture that looks like this. And uh, so That's interesting. So I want to ask some questions about this. And at the time, during the summer, I had a former computer science student who said, well, let's go into business together. I'll write the website and you supply the the code and we will produce art and sell it to people who can put it on their walls. And... And I said, well, I'm kind of busy and someone else is gonna beat us to it. But I fully expected that this was such an incredible pastime that by now, the mainstream of society, all of you, all of us, your children, your parents, everyone would be spending all their time generating personalized, fantastic artwork and talking about it and sharing it with each other. And that hasn't happened. And. Why is that? And I think there and that's going to be kind of a big discussion topic that uh, I think we'll be able to pull from uh, people in the room as far as some ideas for that. So yeah, this is me. And uh, thank you very much for the wonderful introduction, Michael. Um, As I say, my background is in computational modeling. And really, when I joined Belmont, Uh, Belmont is primarily a commercial music school, and I teach primarily audio engineering students. And I left the research world, essentially, after six years as a postdoc doing computational astrophysics, because I just wanted to play music and teach as a day job kind of thing. And it wasn't until I started seeing applications of machine learning for the future of my audio production students, and seeing how this was going to transform the field, that I started applying my nonlinear modeling skills to get up to speed on machine learning and neural networks and then I just really, really liked it and it took over my life and it destroyed my music hobby, which is kind of sad, but I want to get back to it. So um, some of the questions that uh, I think the topics we're going to be looking at will bring to mind, and these are age-old const- uh conversations in the arts. Okay. So I think there is maybe something that's new, or at least there does seem to be some kind of a milestone that we may have reached. But most of this stuff, these conversations go back at (laughs) decades and centuries. Questions like, what are the roles of spontane, in terms of artistry or creativity, the roles of uh, spontaneity or inspiration, right? And method and process. And we can be talking about visual art or uh, music composition or prose, any of these sorts of things. right? The idea there of uh, purpose and intentionality and how much control you have within the process. Some uh, processes of art lend themselves to being more deliberate than others. Uh, to what extent is art a communication? And what are we communicating? Are we communicating emotions like joy or anguish and so forth? Uh, And then the sense of personal style, you know? A lot of artists will spend decades developing their own voice, and what is the role of that? And some of this AI stuff will very much bring up these questions. So I titled it Generative Models as a Foil, and uh, so I'm pulling this word from narrative structure and probably not using it completely correctly and uh, I come from a family of English majors So they they might take issue with my use here, but it's sort of as a contrast now to one extent We can talk about AI um, or machine learning methods And I'm not going to bother really explaining those words. We can do that tonight if we want to But as sort of being a partner or a contrasting element, we could think of it as a tool sometimes people will use uh, generative tools to help inspire their own art. Um, but uh, yeah, something that shows a contrast, something that through that interaction makes the protagonist, which in this case I'm imagining humans, uh, becoming better. And interesting the uh, this is all Wikipedia, uh, the word foil, it originates there was an old practice of <coughs> backing gems with foils to make them shine more brightly. And so the idea of AI as a foil for human creativity is something that many practitioners in uh, the technical area that are on the boundary of arts and music very much would, would prefer to look at that. That they're not so interested in replacing human creativity but in terms of enhancing it. Whether you're at Google Magenta or if you're working at Adobe or some other sort of place, they're still trying to market to humans. Not everyone's doing that and there are definitely applications that will seek to remove the human from the loop and that's another interesting dynamic. So I'm going to set up a tension between, so you're not, you are going to listen to me, this is going to come through the filter of me, but two of my main sources for these things are going to be a book by Marcus Sautoy, which I have in my backpack here. So Dusautoy is a mathematician, and he inherited Richard Dawkins' job at Oxford, which is uh, the, uh, oh gosh, um, Simoni, uh Chair in uh, Public Communication of Science. And Dusatoi is an excellent uh, author. He's written numerous popular books on various aspects of math or science. He does not have the uh, really antagonistic atheism of Dawkins. That was not part of the job description. Uh, <laughs> being a communicator is, and so, This came out in 2019 and it's really a survey of art throughout the ages and with a particular emphasis on uh, generative aspects of art and machine learning and AI. And I actually, uh, if you wanna not read the whole book and just get a feel for it, I did write a review for uh, Perspectives on Science and Christian Faith for it. That's only a page and a half or so. It's a really good book and I, I really recommend it. It's interesting that it went to the publisher before some of the really, really big revolutionary language model stuff started coming out. And so that's not in this book. And you can kind of guarantee that any book you might want to try to write about AI is good. Parts of it are just not going to be able to keep up, right? But it's still a wonderful resource. So uh, I'm going to hold that intention with my excellent colleague, Steve Guthrie. Steve Guthrie is a, a professor at Belmont University. He uh, was hired as a professor on theology and the arts. He was a former student and collaborator with Jeremy Begby. Uh, some of you know Jeremy Begby as a big name in theology of art. And at St. Andrews in Scotland, Begby and Guthrie taught a class on the Holy Spirit and the particular kind of flavor they put to this class. So it was a theology class on, uh, I'm still learning to pronounce this word, is it? Pneumatology. Pneumatology, thank you very much. And, uh, but, but, they thought, well, let's put this in the cast of the arts. And this is a wonderful book. There's certainly some other great books by Christian scholars of the arts like David Taylor. And I was told that some people have been studying a book by uh, Makato Fujimura, are, are any of those folks here today? They're not actually, they're our baristas. Oh, our baristas, all right. Well, they can listen to the recording. And uh, yeah, so um, anyway, so Guthrie has a lot to say. Guthrie is a, he's a musician. And so his book is very accessible. It's it's very biblically based, but he's also surveying secular thinkers on art and uh, theologians and engaging with a lot of uh, musical people like um, John Coltrane. He says a lot about Coltrane. It's a wonderful book. So I'm gonna hold these two views kind of in tension because of the view of a potential partner for uh, human creativity. And so with the AI, I'm imagining Dusautoy, we can, you know, if we had him in the room, he might not agree with my using his name in this way, but we could say AI as being some sort of a tool or partner for enhancing human creativity, as opposed to, or perhaps in concert with, the Holy Spirit. And so let's look at some of these aspects. So Dusautoy, he introduces very early on in his book something he calls the Lovelace Test, and he sets it up in relation to the famous Turing Test of Al. Uh, Alan Turing and but this is for computational creativity and so he says well to pass the Lovelace test an algorithm has to produce something that is truly creative we'll come to that second it has to be repeatable programmer has to be unable to explain how the algorithm produced its output and so when he says creative he means something new surprising and of value okay and he also goes on to say for it to be deemed truly creative uh, its contribution has to be more than an expression of the creativity of its coder or the person who built its data set. Okay. And so Guthrie, is so I just pulled a few quotes, and I could have pulled a lot more, actually. But he has a section on the Holy Spirit as the surprise bringer. And he says at one point in the book, what's more, the Spirit also brings about, and he probably would have capitalized spirit there, uh, new and altogether unexpected states of affairs. And in terms of the value of the contribution, it's described as gifts, right? The Holy Spirit displays gifts for the church and for individuals, and the value of these, he goes on to develop that a little more. So there's some similarities here, obviously. But there are also some interesting differences. And so um, I'm gonna hold off on DeSautoy for just a minute. Guthrie also sort of contrasts his view of the Holy Spirit with uh, an earlier view from Plato's Ion and uh, more current postmodern views regarding inspiration. What is the role of inspiration? And for Plato, this idea of inspiration, even though there may be a divine God involved, it involved stealing the agency of the human being. It essentially would take over the human. And certainly there are quotes from artists who will say things like, you know, when I am producing my art, something just takes over. I don't know where it comes from. But formally, in the Platonic dialogue, it is a taking over, it is a removal of the human uh, creativity. There's not an element of the individual. Whereas, as Guthrie describes it, um, and, sorry, he also goes on to say this is compatible with postmodern views in which um, Anything that you might wanna say as an individual is really just a product of the society you're in and the role that you have in terms of gender, race, or these other sorts of factors. Whereas for Guthrie with the Holy Spirit, it's much more about being in concert with the Holy Spirit. The individual is brought to be, rather than dehumanized, is brought to be more human. And that's a constant theme in Guthrie's account is that the creativity and the work of the Holy Spirit is the recreation of the human being rather than the dissolution of the human being. So uh, I use this word chaos in my title because I needed a title. And to (coughs) me, when I'm thinking of, of that, I'm thinking of the noise initialization that as we start talking about these models a little bit, we typically will initialize them with random noise according to some probability distribution. And so how is that tamed? Well, in the context of neural network models, the neural network is a mapping function and it will map the probability distribution of the noise such that it can produce multiple instances of something new. And we could get even more technical and uh, mathematical if you really want to, but I'm kind of gonna assume you don't want to. But there's this fascinating thing (laughs) called the uh, Wasserstein loss function. I'll save it, but We can talk about individually, right? But we're transforming the noise spectrum. And big contrast for Guthrie. He's saying chaos, so in Genesis, we start off with this, uh, the formless void, the tohu wabohu. Someone else will say that better than me. I'm sorry. But uh, the story of Christianity is the defeat of chaos. And that ultimately, all things being wrapped up in Christ there's an expression of order and wisdom and intelligence and knowledge that is different from chaos. So he says the modern, he's looking at a modern perspective. The modern sublime suggests that form cannot contain what is ultimate. The postmodern says that form is a lie in a world of chaos. The New Testament, however, asserts that in Jesus Christ, the infinite has indeed taken form. So the story of the defeat of the tohu wabohu through uh, the intelligence and ordering structure of Christ in a creativity uh, and spontaneity kind of context is a big contrast between earlier views and uh, Guthrie's view. And um, so I'm not saying that we need to defeat AI necessarily or that AI is uh, bad or the beast or anything like that although it is interesting if you follow uh the rationalist sorts of conversations like the less wrong Weaky, and people who are really really worried about so-called ai alignment and they're worried about uh, a big a if you may have heard of uh, roko's basilisk this idea of a super intelligent ai that becomes so powerful that we might as well get uh, started helping because otherwise it will find out that we didn't help. And there are a lot of religious similarities to this that I'm not even, pre- I don't even have slides on that stuff. So I'm going to stay on script. Well, uh, let's talk just a little bit about history of generative methods in the art. So this is Mozart for you. He had his Musikalisches Werfelspiel, which was a set. He would compose little snippets of music. And he was so brilliant, he had designed it so that these different snippets could go together. And then Verfel is dice. So you roll the dice. And from the (laughs) dice, that helps you pick out a series. Uh, So each one of his little musical uh, clips or loops, we might say, they could be pasted together based on your dice roll. And this was a game. And he did this I'm sure he was very young when he did this. Maybe music history people can correct me on that. But this was just a game. And this was something that people would do at parties, uh, just to have fun with it. Um, My colleague in Nashville, Lisa Ashman, she's a brilliant songwriter. She's um, more of a writer than a performer, but her songs have been recorded by lots of people. She's a former planetary astrophysicist, but... Uh, left that behind many years ago. Is was primarily known as a songwriter. She has a book on, uh, it used to be 750 songwriting ideas, but when I looked it up, uh, it's now up to a thousand. And a lot of these, you could describe them as games. Like, take this and juxtapose it with this other thing, and then see what kind of synthesis you get from that. right? And I'm immediately thinking of some philosophical traditions that might go along with that. So, um, generative... Art has been around for a very, very long time. And so we're on a continuum of that discovery. And we could say a lot more about that, but I'm going to move on. Uh, Question about intentionality in the process. How much control do you have? And how is the value of the art related to what the person put into it? So on the one hand, we've got a, a painting that was about to sell for a really big amount of money. It was part of the Paris a very prestigious art show, and it was a joke. It was one of these things where they submitted something, and someone can, uh, I have the name of the artist, uh, you can look it up, but this, uh, this painting, Sunset Over the Adriatic, this was painted by a donkey. It was painted by a donkey's tail. And uh, when that eventually came out, suddenly the value of this piece of art plummeted <laughs> drastically. Contrast that to Jackson Pollock, who is still regarded as a master artist. You can look at entire books on the mastery of Jackson Pollock, and people still connect with Pollock. And his process involved, you know, letting the paint sort of fly around. And on some level, he's exhibiting control over the path that his bucket would uh, take or that, you know, where the paintbrush was being flicked. But some of that was part of the process, and it was random. And yet he's regarded as a master. And I'm not saying he's not, nor am I saying that that Jackson Pollock's work is comparable to the donkey's work. I'm just saying there's this dynamic about intentionality. And uh, I think compared to, say, for example, uh, Vermeer, maybe, uh, we might say that maybe Pollock's intentionality is perhaps not as, uh, not as, easily evident, right? Or maybe compared to Leonardo da Vinci, for example. So, we'll see this as we get to the AI art. So I wanna talk about a couple different kinds of models, and there are many, many different classes of generative art, but the ones that have kind of been making a lot of noise, (laughs) pun intended, lately. So, uh, this was actually from maybe six or seven years ago when GANs first came out, Generative Adversarial Networks. And the idea was depicted by DevNag where what we do is we have a data set of real art examples of the kind that we want to produce and these could be pictures of people or I've got an example where it's anime faces like cartoons, any kind of thing, you have a data set of real images and you have, so you have some kind of noise initialization, the noise is to give you variety, so it's random, each time it gives you something a little different. And then through the course of a neural network, it becomes essentially a forger. It's kind of a blind forger, but it's trying to produce a forgery of art. Now it's not necessarily trying to produce a forgery of the Mona Lisa. It's trying, because you actually, your data set typically has many different kinds of pieces of art that are in a, maybe a similar kind of style. So you might have a bunch of different Leonardo pieces or pieces from that kind of time period and the forgery is trying to produce an image that to a art detective, the detective is trying to decide was this painted by a real person or not. It's kind of a Turing test in an in a interesting kind of way. And so you can make this process uh, into a optimization loop so that the detective, it doesn't merely issue a binary yes or no, fake or real, real being made by human. It produces essentially a score, a, uh, a continuous value, or actually a continuous set of values if you do it really well. And the generator is able to look at that set of values and then kind of invert where they are in the optimization space, such that next time you run the iteration, it's gonna move a little, so it's able to predict kind of the shape of how the detective is making its decisions. And so I'm anthropomorphizing, obviously, but the next time around when you run this, it's gonna push things a little bit more towards what the detective is looking for. And these two things are actually getting better over time. So actually the detective and the generator, (coughs) we call this the discriminator, really, but it starts with a D. Uh, These are both being trained together. So this one may start without a really good knowledge of what's going on. And this one definitely doesn't know what's going on. But over time, we can produce some really amazing art. And this is now, this is a homework problem. Like my students, I taught deep learning and AI ethics last fall, and one of them was right again from scratch. And I can, for those of you who are students, uh, I'm happy to share the link to that. I've got, uh, if you're familiar with Jupyter Notebooks, I can give you the Jupyter Notebook for that. Okay, so that's GANs. And people have used GANs not just for visual art, although, Many of the striking examples are visual art. You may be familiar with the website, this person does not exist, Mm -hmm. right? So we can press reload and reload and reload and it will generate a, so this person doesn't exist and lots of other people that it generates. They look photorealistic. They look like these are pictures of real people. And in some cases, they actually bear a close resemblance to individuals in the training data set with slight differences, so it does memorize a little bit. But yeah, we could just press reload and reload and reload. And uh, this one here, this is, uh, they have one that generates animals, and I actually, uh, so, and it'll generate them with proper hair color and whatnot. But you can actually inspect the model, so I went a couple layers down inside the neural network, and uh, you can make, so it's it's interpolating a point in a multi-dimensional space that describes the orientation and the type of the animal, whether it's a wolf or a cat, something like that, and it's just this point in space that's kind of uh, moving around, and I just loved it and thought it was really cool. Oh yeah, here's an example of the anime faces from my homework uh, assignment, and if you continue to run this longer, they get better and better. Obviously, some of them are kind of a little wonky, um, (laughs) but uh, when it starts off, it really is just noise. It just doesn't look like anything at all, and then you run this for as the minutes roll by, and it progressively starts to look like, hey, wait a second, that that looks pretty good. And so whatever you supply in the initial data set, you can generate. So for example, Chris Donahue and some other people, they did this for audio. So WaveGAN is, this is a great demo they made, this is a drum machine, except the drum samples, so we've got like kick and snare and so forth. Each of these is completely unique, never been heard before, and you can press a button, you can press the change button, and it will generate a new kick drum sound based on trying to approximate the probability distribution of kick drum sounds that were part of the training data set. It's really great, and this was 2016, maybe 2017, so things have gotten even better, and uh, as I mentioned, like, the earlier GAN things would, would look wonkier and wonkier, but now, really getting to the world of, you've heard of deep fakes, right? So deep fakes are largely based on GAN, generative adversarial model technology, where a deep fake, you could, and actually most recently, this just happened uh, this week, someone produced a deep fake of Ukrainian President Zelensky, right, that's his name, where he's saying, um, Hello, my countrymen, we need to surrender to the Russians. Everybody, please lay down your arms. And this went out on Facebook as a deep fake that was presumably initiate, initiated by the Russians. So this is a very interesting sort of ethical aspect of this technology. And we can definitely talk about that as well. Uh, okay, so I don't want to get too technical, but there's this thing called CLIP that came out last, well, almost two years ago now, Uh, that is really responsible for some of the cool artwork that I'm going to show you. And it stands for Contrastive Language Image Pre-Training. You don't need to necessarily know what that means, but uh, what we're going to do is we're going to generate some piece of, let's say, visual art, all right, and then we're going to have an image captioning AI, machine learning method, that's been trained to look and describe different images. And Google has developed these over the years, for example, for search. Like if you're doing image search and you say, I want a picture of a dog running through a field, jumping up to catch a Frisbee in its mouth, and then the Google image search will go and look for images that match that description. Well, in this case, what we do is we take that prompt of, let's say, the dog trying to do something, and we map that into a latent space, we call it, we're stealing, uh, w- we often like to steal words from Kant, like latent representations and whatnot. Uh, so the text encoder is going to generate a point in some multi-dimensional space, and the generator is going to generate an image where we can map that image into a nearby point in that space, and that's as technical as I'm going to get it, okay? And what you can do is, you can make it so that this generator as it generates we uh, we modify this a little bit we say instead of having a detective we have our image captioning that looks at the image and generates a caption so we take some noise we produce an image we produce a caption and you the user you supply what you want so you say okay I want a cat on a motorcycle wearing a bowler cap and maybe the first few times, I mean, it doesn't look like anything at all, but progressively there's an optimization process, and eventually you might get to a point where the caption is a dog riding scooter or wearing a cowboy hat. Now, the captioner isn't actually generating these words, it's generating a point in a multi-dimensional space that if you were to decode it, it would spit that out, but they don't, they don't really bother with that part. But the point is that over time, you can get the caption of the generated image to match the prompt. And that's done by forcing, so the captioner isn't learning anymore. The caption was already trained on, let's say Google image search. The generator is really the main thing that's learning in here. And so it's learning to produce images that progressively are more likely to have a caption matching the prompt that you supply. And this trick was exploited by OpenAI who developed Clip. They made a a method called DALI, but that was proprietary. The stuff that came out of DALI was amazing though, and you can look it up if you want. It was this graduate student at Stanford who decided, hey, I could actually hook this up to anything, and I could hook it up to various GANs. And one of the most popular, the the model that really, really took off was called a vector quantized GAN, VQGAN. And folks, if you get on uh, Google, and look up Clip, vqgan Demo, or I'm going to show you some other links that are going to be easier to use, but you can get as addicted as I was. And uh, I spent a lot of time on a particular server run by a group called Eloither, and uh, they had a thing set up on Discord where you could type in your prompt, and they had, someone had donated um, GPU time, GPU graphics processing units, you guys have a massive grant from Nvidia uh, next door, and I'm jealous of that. Uh, but People would just spend like all day generating art. I would stay up super late just generating art, using their computers. Uh, So I'm gonna show you some of my own work. Again, I'm not an artist, I can't draw, I'm not trying to promote myself as an artist. I do wanna mention, like, okay, I'm gonna show you my Instagram where I dump my stuff, but a lot of this, there are other people that are worth uh, really following for interesting work. And there are a lot of interesting AI artists, people that have been working for years, One person I do want to pick out, Catherine Croson, she goes by Rivers Have Wings on Twitter. And as I say, there are lots of different artists out there. Uh, She's been particularly involved in developing code and releasing code that others can use. And not just her, people, Uh, involved with this Aloyther group, but she's kind of the first author on a lot of this stuff. And so she does her own work, but she also releases these codes that she can run for free. And so I would say, I'm going to show you my Instagram. Feel free to follow me. I don't care, but definitely follow her. Also, there's a group called AIartists.org, and they're also on Twitter as well as just at AIartists. And there's a lot of really interesting people that I could show you. But if you start following uh, Catherine, you'll see some of the other people as well. So, without further ado, here's some of the stuff that I was able to produce. So, uh, these are prompts that I gave that uh, these are mine in some sense, whatever that really means. So, I said, okay, give me uh, an Ansel Adams print, and one of the things that people found, there's sort of a technique to this, they call it prompt engineering, and as with other arts, there's a craft aspect to learning how to manipulate the paintbrushes or learning how to play different techniques on the instrument. There are techniques for prompt engineering. And sometimes you can say, make it like this kind of thing. And people discovered if we give it uh, the name of like a game engine, like Unreal Engine, for example, you can get really interesting uh, 3D models and things. There's a, a website called ArtStation where people will upload their art. And if you tell it, give me something that's trending on ArtStation. So the clip model was trained on the entire internet of images. It was lear- it learned to caption whatever's out there on the internet. And so it essentially acquires some kind of knowledge of style and artists names and visual effects that I'll demonstrate. Uh, this is uh, yeah, the grumpy cat nebula. Um, <laughs> due to the nature of the model, it's actually better, it tends to do lots of little things, uh, rather than coherent holes very well. So this is why it's kind of blobby. The dance macabre, which is a misspelling of the, uh, uh, it's supposed to be D-A-N-S, but here they're dancing. I think I may have said something about mice on a rooftop. Uh, Again, I can't draw, but I can run the code. Um, It knows about historical things. So I said, okay, give me a picture of Hogwarts, make it a daguerreotype. And this is just me screwing around, all right? I hadn't seen other people doing this. I mean, definitely watching the or Discord and you watch what other people are doing and you rip off what they're working on. Uh, but as far as I know, daguerreotype was something that I uh, wrote as well and it, it knows. And so if you don't know, daguerreotype is really, really old-timey style of photography, okay? Um, I do a lot with audio and we deal with spectrogram images, in particular something called a male spectrogram. And uh, this, uh, this image, I told it, you know, make me a mel spectrogram of an electric guitar sound. This image, I posted it to Twitter, and the lead author on Clip saw it and loved it and retweeted my thing. And again, I'm just messing around here. Interesting that it looks, it makes these little guitar shapes in there. So it's kind of fun. Uh, here's one I said, okay, give me a great wave of Kanagawa, but make it like it's chocolate because I just wanted to throw it, I really wanted to throw it weird stuff. Uh, Here's one I did, this is a triptych that I did, uh, on um, action figures performing a Shakespearean play, and I also said, diorama, depth of field, medieval, and it knows camera effects, like this depth of field kind of thing, right? And so this is completely generated from random noise, but it looks like it's a photograph of a tiny little model, of a diorama, right? Pretty amazing. So people come up with all kinds of little tricks to craft the prompt to look like they want. And so uh, I responded to this guy originally. I said, okay, look, someday my mom's gonna be really proud of uh, the prompt that I wrote for something, right? <laughs> okay, so uh, here's another one. Now this is getting interesting. So the prompt here is here is your pizza and uh, in the style of. So it knows about different artists' styles. And so I've got eight different artist styles, and I want you to kind of think, think for yourself, think if you can uh, name uh, the artist style. And in some cases it's different. And and I have the answers in a second. But does anybody want to guess? Well, okay, this one, this one's probably not too hard. Anybody want to guess on this one? Yeah, Salvador Dali. Very good. Okay, what about this one? That's right, it's Edvard Moon. Right. Okay. All right. What about this one? Banksy. Banksy. Yeah. That's right. Okay. All right. The other ones you may not know. Uh, this was just a cave painting. Here's your. Okay. Anybody? Does this ring a bell? Any uh, sci-fi fans of pulp fiction from like the '70s? John Berkey. John Berkey did a lot of cool stuff. What about? What about this one? Does this ring a bell with anybody? This is a comic thing. Yeah, you might not know, That's, uh, so here, here are answers. So there's John Berkey, I love sci-fi stuff. So John Berkey, uh, I use his name when I'm generating cool stuff. Uh, Dolly, Monk, Frank Frazetta painted, uh, did the artwork for all the Conan the Barbarian stuff. And so if you say in the style of Frank Frazetta, you will get uh, thongs and leather, <laughs> And uh, I did one about draw me a bunch of cute bunnies and kitty cats in the style of Frank Frazetta, and they were like sexy bunnies (laughs) and kitty cats, and it was a little weird. Uh, Cave painting, okay, yeah, Banksy. This one, I told it to do Rembrandt. I don't really know that, uh, I tried several times. Now Rembrandt, I picked Rembrandt because people have really done a lot with AI and Rembrandt, and uh, IBM invested a lot of money with the University of Delft on faking a Rembrandt. um, Mine, I don't think it's going to be fake. And to be honest, I don't even remember. I don't even remember what uh, who that was uh, for, the, for that one. All right. And then you can interpolate between the artists. You can say, you know, give me half of this person and half of this person. Or you can even subtract people. So, um, and I could go on and on with... Uh, examples. In fact, if you want to see more examples, I've included, there's my Instagram. Again, I'm not really trying to promote this, but uh, I was trying to come up with a short name. It kind of sounds like exultant. um, And anyway, there, I have more examples up there. Uh, Anyway, so we can combine things and then produce something original. Now, there's a long history of this in art, people developing styles in songwriting exercises. We might say, I'm gonna try and write a song in the style of so-and-so, and and there's gonna be some synergy between what I bring to the table and what my perception of this other person's style is. And there's a long history. It's expected that you're uh, stealing from the best, as they say, right? Although, in some cases, people get sued for stealing too much. So this raises interesting questions. Particularly, like, let's say I wanna pick an artist who isn't a household name. And so these are people who spent decades developing their own style, and now I can just, I can rip them off. So this is, a, now those of you who know art, you would, you would know all of these names, but I, as mere Philistine, only discovered the names because I was just, um, honestly, I was just uh, looking for commodities of different styles. And so Caspar David Friedrich, uh, famous German landscape painter. And one of the cool things, that's really neat that people really enjoy with these models, by the way, is not to try to draw something in particular, like trying to draw something concrete, but giving it abstract prompts about emotions and concepts and seeing what the model comes <coughs> up with. It's particularly fascinating. Um, Leonid Aftermouth, if anyone's familiar with his work, the use of colors and geometric shapes shows up in there. My CS student was from Peru, and we were gonna make, he wanted to make money selling. Uh, Peruvian style art. uh, Never took off, but something we are going to do. And then uh, James, James uh, Pierce is the uh, dean of the art school at Belmont. And I keep sending James art uh, that I generate and he never responds. (laughs) And so that's another part. So I ask my main question here is how come we're not all generating art all the time now? The other question is how come art schools don't care? And I think there's some There's maybe some reasons that we can discuss. Okay, so I've done visual art. Same thing can apply to music. It's a little ironic. I don't have a lot of slides on the audio end, even though I spend all my time in the audio world. Uh, But uh, Bob Sturm has a project called Folk RNN that's been going on for many, many years, generating folk tunes, like Irish-style folk tunes and whatnot. And there are books and books and books of these folk RNN uh, generations. And then artists will compose lyrics to go with the melody and then they'll perform them and they'll put out albums. Uh, RNN is a particular kind of network, recurrent neural network. Um, Google Magenta, they make lots and lots of tools for artists and maybe if I can do this without breaking everything, um, they have tons and tons of demos on, um, okay, and I don't understand how to scroll um, properly, but all kinds of things where you can be, like for example, you can, Um, have a Bach uh, harmonizer. So you, you know, you click out some kind of melody and it will spoon. It's like you're composing with Bach, for example. Or you can even do it real time. You can be playing the piano and there will be an AI system that will jump in and start playing along with you. And the more you play, the more it learns what you, how you like to play and the more it starts to match what you're doing. And then certainly people are using uh, drum beat generators all the time, that's built into Apple's Logic. I've used that for sure. Where you have some song that you've recorded and now you're like, well, do I really wanna hire a drummer? Can I just kind of (laughs) generate a rough sketch and then hire the drummer later? Uh, Absolutely. So uh, there's a lot on these kinds of things. Okay, now I need to slideshow. So Jukebox was particularly interesting because it was kind of like this clip thing where you tell it, I want a song like this. And then it generates a song like that. And it knows different kinds of artists. You can say, give me something that sounds like Elvis. You can mix and match. And people have used this a lot. And in particular, there are these guys called Databots that I have another slide devoted to. But uh, for example, Databots did one where they had uh, Frank Sinatra singing a Britney Spears song. And you could even supply the lyrics and it got a copyright takedown notice from YouTube um, from the estate of Frank Sinatra. And uh, it wasn't so much that they were offended by the use of his image in an unlicensed way. It was just, it was one of these automated things, like just no, eventually they got it back up. But if you listen to it, it is, it's Frank Sinatra. I mean, there's noise, it's a little noisy, but it's, it's uncanny. Right now there's the AI song contest going on. It's been going on for a few years. And in my opinion, I'm always disappointed. So these Databots guys, I need to say something about them. Uh, these are researcher artists. So most researchers release papers. Databots, they release albums, but they're very much uh, researchers and their main uh, spokesperson, so it's a duo, a guy named CJ Carr. And if you get a chance to see CJ doing a talk, he's amazing. Now they are not on the Holy Spirit side of things at all. Uh, they actually revel in uh, demonic imagery and uh, talk about replacing humans in a joking kind of way, but uh, there's, they're very deep into the culture of sort of chaotic kinds of art. And their biggest, uh, one of their biggest sort of attention grabbers was a piece called Relentless Doppelganger, which is 24 seven non-stop death metal on YouTube. We could go there right now, I could click on this link, and we could start hearing Relentless, and it would just go on and on and on. And it's that kind of just really fast drums and guys screaming and yelling. And uh, I'll spare you that right now. We can do that while, uh, maybe during dessert or something like that, play some of that. But they've really learned to harness jukebox to the point where they're now, they will do different bands. And they will take an album from a band, generate more music in the style of that band. And rather than being upset, the bands love it. And they say, hey, could, could you do more? Could you do more of us? Like, and uh, there's an artist called Keon Grace that uh, he's kind of a hip-hop artist. They collaborated with, uh, he collaborated with Databots, and they released a song that was featured as part of the NVIDIA every year. They have what they call the GTC event. It's kind of like the big Apple event or the big Microsoft event. There's a big NVIDIA event. And this Keon Chris. Um, collaboration with DataBots was featured prominently, and it sounds great, and it's kind of a rap song, but the beats in the background are these noisy, gritty things that were generated through some combination of numbers, essentially. So, uh, really neat, Uh, I am a DataBots fan. So, yeah, related to the earlier question, why aren't people generating music all the time, and even the tools? So, Google Magenta has made all these great tools, Who's really using them? I mean, there are examples of artists who will uh, be very vocal and open about their use of AI, like uh, Holly um, Holly Herndon um, is one of these people. And various artists will release albums, like some of you familiar with um, Derek, uh, formerly Christian artist, Cadman's Call. Web. Yeah, Derek Webb did an album, um, I don't know, six or seven years ago, uh, called Control, C-T-R-L, and it was, I've you know used an AI tool in the composition of these songs, but it's still not common. Why don't you just press a button and say, "Give me some artwork." Even though we could do that, right? And uh, oh, I forgot to ask: Does anyone recognize my shirt? I wore this special for today. Uh, Mike might because he knows me a bit, but maybe not. Anybody? 1980s sci-fi TV show. Yeah. It looks like Voltron. No, it's the Buck Rogers. You were. Yes, Dr. Theopolis. Yeah. yeah, most excellent Theopolis. And uh, he was the AI that was um, in charge of the government there. And the AIs had fixed everything. They had fixed all the, so human society had ruined themselves and they abdicated control to the AIs who fixed everything. Everything. It's like that, that movie Idiocracy where he says, I've got a three-point plan to fix everything, and it involved turning over control to Luke Wilson. In this case, uh, they turned everything over to the AI. So I wore this special for today. Also, Theopolis has this, you know, it almost sounds like Theophilus, right? So that's the connection there. All right, uh, so Text. Yeah, so this was uh, this was I am kind of ribbing uh, Mike last year. <laughs> so those of you know he's he's got an Ivan Illich quote for every occasion, or maybe a Hannah Arendt quote. Uh, some people quote Star Wars uh, for Mike. It's it's Illich. And um, so there's a a language model called GPT-3. There are various language models that come in different sizes and shapes. But GPT-3 really was capable of doing amazing things and it could kind of learn very quickly, what they call few-shot learning. So just by giving it about, four to eight examples. I took real quotes from Ivan Illich, and then I said, I want to make a calendar. I want to make an Illich-a-day calendar, 365 fake Illich. And look at these things. I mean, wow. some of these are so look at, The primary function of mass media is to divert our attention from important things. I, I mean, all of these, he's got, he's got things about education, if the bureaucrat is not a servant, he must be a master. If he is not a tool, he must be a monster. I mean, like, I want that. I want to claim that I wrote that. Yeah? But something about this also felt kind of dirty or <laughs> ugly. And I felt that with my appropriation of the art styles of people who worked so hard. I felt like I'm kind of trampling on the graves of people who spent... It, who really suffered and developed things and thought carefully. And now it's just some input to me. It's just, okay, and I, can, I don't have to really work at it. I mean, yes, you can definitely spend, there are people who spend all day crafting all day, not all year, but uh, crafting the prompt to try and make it uh, like a certain thing. But yeah, I can really easily appropriate things. Now, in terms of working in concert, I wanna uh, promote, actually, there's a tool called PseudoWrite. And it's a GPT-based writing helper. And it is a helper. And these people really thought about what kinds of things, what kind of operation modes you can kind of try and select, like, what is it that I'm really trying to do here? and it will either spout ideas for you or it will help revamp your style. I don't make any money off this. It's still in beta as far as I know. I just really liked it. I came in thinking, oh yeah, this, is gonna, this isn't going to be very good. And I ended up being very, very surprised. All right. Yeah, Part of it, getting around writer's block. So for years people would do games to get around writer's block. These people really thought, they worked in concert, they're not just computer folks, they worked with uh, writing people, creative writing people. So uh, I think that's worth checking out. Uh, and then I don't know if anybody's seen AI Dungeon. That's another generative texting where you can, you're working in concert with this system to craft your own adventure. And um, it's very sophisticated. And um, they've had some problems with people using it for nefarious purposes as well, but I, I really, I loved it. And for me, the interest is not so much creating the art as probing where the model fails. And I had this great time where I was running, I was doing some sort of adventure where we're going through the woods and you know it's elves and fairies and whatnot, and we're in this forest. And then I say, hey, I wanna go downstairs to the cafeteria and get some lunch. And rather than saying, what are you talking about? We're in the middle of a forest with elves and fairies. The model goes, Okay, so you go downstairs to the cafeteria to get some lunch. It just, it just kind of goes with it. It's almost like an improv comedy troupe where you're always supposed to be <laughs> saying yes to what the other person says. So there's that one. All right. So still, I'm asked a question, how come we're not doing this all the time? And I'm, I'm going to wrap up in just a minute here. Um, so uh, one other thing, the taming chaos. So nowadays, I mentioned VQGAN clip. As the main model that people are using and by the way you can get this on your phone you can download dream by wombo and you can tell it what kind of art you want you'll have it in a few seconds uh, this is a the, the cool kids nowadays are using denoising uh, diffusion models where it's kind of like the, uh, the old metaphor of the angel trapped in the block of marble in this case it's some kind of coherent image that's trapped in a bunch of noise and it progressively removes noise until it settles on an image and in this case I told it so this is a this is a plug for the talk tonight curves and categories and I actually I'm using a Kodinsky image for my main image but I said yeah give me something Kodinsky uh hang on I'm trying to go to the next slide yeah that's what I ended up with I'm not using that one tonight I'm using a real Kodinsky But uh, yeah, these denoising diffusion models are the new hot thing, and people really love them. And you can tell it to like make a picture of a real thing, and it does a much better job than like you saw my grumpy cat Nebula with the eyes all (laughs) over the place. Diffusion model would probably do a better job. So one other plug, Uh, if we're talking about generative models, so Makoto Fujimura has a book, On Becoming Generative, An Introduction to Culture Care. And if i had had a little or if I'd taken more time in my preparation, I probably would have included some Fujimori quotes, but I can at least uh, plug his book in there as well. So uh, this was kind of my main question that uh, I was imagining for discussion, and that's the end of my talk. Thank you very much, happy to discuss. Thank you.